So I'm glad to have made it. Just got lost in the dark. Why not following the rules, walking around in the dark? So, uh, <laughs> so. Um, as you may have noticed, uh, we are interested in helping to translate some of these old contemplative teachings for which we have a tremendous amount of respect and gratitude and uh, a growing sense of the richness of these teachings, both the written teachings enshrined in various textual traditions and also the teachings of an oral or maybe plural of many oral lineages uh, to which we have very fortuitously access today. Um, much of that translation happens by translating teachings that come from a period in which mind was not understood in psychological terms, as it is for about a good hundred years now, but a type of understanding that ca that is couched in the language of myth, it is couched in the language of imagery, it is couched in a, a mixture of legend, storytelling, uh, similes, um, a language we would rate as unscientific by nowadays standards, and yet a, a language which is strangely precise if you bother to sift through uh, the textual corpus of early Buddhist teachings, you find an incredible amount of richness, precision, uh, dexterity, complexity that uh, would, you know, would help us a lot if we continued that translation effort. What we operate by today, you may think we have Buddhism, but by my understanding, we, we don't have Buddhism. Yeah? We have scraped. Yeah? This is a huge quarry of contemplative teachings, and we've kind of we've run in there. You know, we've picked up a few pieces, and we've made a beeline out again. You know, kind of proud of our loot. But actually, there's a lot more there. And if we kind of made a point of revisiting and sifting through more of it, uh, much would be won. In many fields of, of learning today, um, progress could be expected in the obvious fields, in the fields of philosophy, in the fields of, of psychology, in uh, fields of epistemology. You know, we have plenty of stuff. There is so much good teachings, useful, pra practicable teachings that are there, that they're waiting to be translated and brought into dialogue with the sciences of the West, with our current understanding here um, in the West. I put that in scare quotes because the West now goes to the East and the East and the West, this is an old story, this doesn't work anymore. You know? Some of the Western stuff is actually done in the East and some of the Eastern stuff is gradually being done here in the West. So these things have become a little more complicated.
the modernist movements of Buddhism in the West have all begun in the East. We just happen to have forgotten this little fact because we're a little Western-centric. So I wanted to give a really Buddhist talk tonight. Um, while most of meditation teaching, because meditation deals with the mind in Western fields is obviously dealt with most closely by psychology, because it's psychology that deals most obviously with phenomena of mind. That means that many teachings around meditation have undergone a sort of psychologization. Yeah? So the languaging of meditative or contemplative uh, ter territory in the West happens often uh, with the help of the terminology of psychology, yeah? because it is in those terms that we have begun to reflect about our own experience. Yeah. This isn't very old. 150 years ago, nobody was using psychological language to refer to inner experience. Yeah. That starts somewhere with William James and Wilhelm Wundt in the, in, the, in the 1870s. But before that, people, when referring to inner experience, did not use the language of psychology, although we would call the processes they would reflect on psychological. There wasn't a language of psychology. This is a fairly recent development. So, tonight I wanted to speak about three things. One is citta, uh, of which we have done an exercise. I wanted to speak of some of the problems that the citta undergoes, where it gets stuck. And I was hoping to at least mention or sketch a glimpse of a, a, a possibility for this citta to not uh, fall into the pitfalls that we all know too well. I'd like to begin with a quote which I think sums up in an almost embarrassingly laconic way the, the linchpin of Buddhist mind training. Yeah. Let me read that to you. I got the wrong glasses here, but I I know it's better without, actually. <laughs> uh, the quote is very short. It's from the middle-length saying. It's in the 19th uh, text of the middle-length saying. And it says, Practitioners, whatever a contemplative frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of his or her mind. So, whatever we think or ponder upon, that our mind will begin to resemble. Yeah. Very, very simple. On, the, on that little principle hinges the whole story of mind cultivation. When we have a choice and we place our attention on objects or on processes, then the nature of those objects or processes will begin to inform the quality of the mind that contemplates them. The more we pay attention to these objects or these processes, the more our mind will take up the message of these and will begin to resemble the things it is preoccupied with. The verbs in there are thinking, pondering, directing the mind towards. That is uh, what I will become. That's exactly what William James uh, said a few hundred years later by stating, um, we you know, our experience is what we give our attention to. If we keep giving our attention to something, this will become our experience. Yeah. 
If we give our attention to our fears, then we will become fearful people. If this attention is not guided in appropriate, inquisitive, modulating ways, if we just follow the habit of giving our attention to what pulls our attention, what has, as the jargon goes, intentional salience, if we follow the natural streak of giving our attention to the, to the wheel that squeaks loudest, then we are likely to reinforce an existing pattern. The corollary of this is that we, if we take up, contemplate and ponder and think upon uh, things that are wholesome, that are useful, that help us to cultivate qualities of the mind that are liberating, then the mind will become like those. Yeah? Then we begin to manifest the very pattern of liberation in the moment where we choose wholesome objects and sustain our attention on wholesome objects, uh, engage in wholesome mental processes, uh, uh, relate to our experience in appropriate ways that bring about, that foster what Buddhist teaching calls pavana, cultivation. It's one of the weirdness <coughs> of this translational activity that the word cultivation or literally bringing into being in the West has become translated as meditation, meditare from Latin thinking. Um, seems not an obvious candidate for this activity. You know, anybody who knows anything about Buddhist meditation is conscious that meditation is probably not the term that is meant by mind cultivation. So the mind cultivation takes place in the mind, and that mind is the citta. Now that citta is a, it's a, it's a, a fascinating term, a term that Buddhist traditions have held with some nervousness themselves. Yeah. That citta is described in uh, various ways. Let me see whether I can be succinct on this. The concept occurs many, many times in the Pali Suttas. It, um, you could say it most frequently refers to a notion of mind that accompanies, encompasses cognitive functions. Yeah? Uh, it encompasses uh, affective and resonant qualities and it uh, encompasses functions of will. Um, we don't have a proper equivalent in, in, in European languages. Um, it could be rendered as mind or heart, preferably as both. It is the felt seat from where we touch into the world and which is touched by this world. Yeah? Subjectively, this is literally the heart of our experience. Yeah? It is a place where intellectual and affective functions are not yet separate. This, um, this citta, uh, as the seat of our experience, is dynamic. It is not solid. It, when uh, introspectively investigated, it will demonstrate multifaceted and dynamic patterns. These patterns we recognize, they are a continu continu continuum of moments and they cease, they arise, they reconstellate. Um, it is not a nucleus, it is not a self, it is not a soul, it doesn't have stability. Uh, and yet there, there are processes that reconstellate themselves and it, it begins to be 
recognizable. So we discern patterns. Um, and while it is changeable, indeed it is highly changeable, there's another quote that says, I do not see one other thing that changes so quickly as the mind. It is not easy to give a simile for how quickly the mind changes. Yeah. Uh, if you've ever been in, in a place where you, you know how quickly something switches, you, you may be spending quite some time in a, in a particular state, then a slight little piece changes in your experience and suddenly it collapses into grief or it becomes very funny or all the fun goes away and it becomes dead serious. Yeah? So the chitta turns very quickly. Um, let me give you some examples of how the suttas, the old texts, describe qualities of the chitta. Famous, often quoted passages describe the nature of the chitta as inherently luminous. That is the really good news. Yeah? Uh, the chitta is radiant and when it is troubled by defilements, by things that occlude our understanding or by uh, various passions that distort its function, then these are considered to be adventitious. They are considered to be oncoming. Yeah? So the chitta uh, as such is, uh, is seen to be radiant and luminous while the trouble come and go, which I think is a useful perspective. Yeah? This is not uh, this is not predestination, okay? It's not uh, hereditary sin, or it's, uh, this is a very uh, hopeful, I think, outlook. Uh, other uh, ways that to describe the chitta is described as malleable, as pliable, as lofty, as abundant, as immeasurable. It can be shrunken, it can be reactive, it can be uh, obscured. Occasionally, it may even turn into the proverbial monkey mind. Yeah? The kapi chitang is actually a genuine Pali term. All these things have Pali terms, which I spare you here. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes the chitta has a mind of its own. Yeah? There is a description where uh, we are told his chitta is not pleased by this. Yeah? It, um, we are told that the chitta um, is... Um, Something has qualities almost of an animal, yeah? where it says, the practitioner makes his chitta turn according to his wish. He does not turn according to the chitta's wish, yeah? <laughs> which is an interesting perspective. Yeah. It can be pleased or displeased. Um, there's a love little passage that says, that person does not appeal to my chitta. Yeah. <laughs> Or the recognition, uh, your chitta is very pleased with me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the chitta can be taken in, or it can remain untouched by gains, by favors, by flattery. Um, if the chitta, however, is tamed, danta, or cleansed, purified, parisodita, well-developed, subhavita, through cultivation, that's what Catherine this morning uh, explained to us by cultivation of mind, by citta bhavana, it can become unshakable. It can become capable of deepest intuition. It can recognize its own good, the good of others and the good of both. Um, it is sometimes referred to as a, a mind like a diamond. Yeah. 
Most importantly, if understood as it has truly become, in other words, if the conditionality uh, are understood within the states of the citta, it can be completely liberated. So we have a description of something that is at once beautifully intuitive and yet capricious. You know, early Buddhist, very early Buddhist teaching does make uh, no secret from, from the fact that the citta is both capable of greatest, um, loftiest realizations. At the same time, it's quite seducible, it's quite seductible. You know, it can be led astray, it can be falling asleep, it can shrink, it can, it, it can be moaning, it can be, uh, it can get lost. So, it is something that needs relating to, you know. And I keep harping on about meditation being an intelligent relationship to one's own experience. And I think that is borne out by the variety of descriptions of something both with incredible talent, capable of liberation, of being immeasurable, of being unshakable, of being radiant. At the same time, it can shrunk, shrink, it can, it, it, it can be moping. Uh, it can be maudlin, it, it can be distracted, it, uh, it can be dense. Yeah? And the question is, well, how do, we, how do we tame that mind? How do we guide that mind? How do we bring that mind to fruition? Yeah? And um, as so often is the case, um, one way to do that is to look at where it gets stuck. You know, we have to look at what stops the mind from actually being in a lofty state. What stops the mind from finding stillness? What stops the mind from ex being expansive in its loving qualities? You know? um, so if we look what uh, what the troubles are, um, then we find a number of them. Uh, Buddhism has a lot of list of troubles. If you bother to look, uh, there is um, quite a uh, sophisticated taxonomy of uh, the troubles then ca that can beset the human mind. Uh, one, uh, I think, very tangible uh, such list uh, is called the four upadana. Upadana is an interesting term. Dana means giving. Adana means taking. Upadana is both a reinforcement um, and a concretization. So it means taking something very hard, taking something with firmness. Yeah, we translate that often as attachment or as grasping. And uh, clinging is another term for it. And when this grasping applies to mental phenomena, we speak of identification. Yeah. So we have a term that means grasping, attaching, clinging, identifying with something. From a point of view of Buddhist psychology, this is one of the crucial pieces that creates our suffering. Yeah. When we have in the second of the noble truths, the uh, statement that suffering arises 
from desire, that's only half of the truth. I personally believe it doesn't just say it arises from desire. The desire in there is just shorthand for desire and grasping. You can be totally without desire and you're still going to die. Has never quite made sense to me the causality of desire being the sole cause of suffering. Um, there are many other ways you can come to suffering. So I believe that the statement uh, that dukkha samudaya arises uh, from desire is shorthand for desire and grasping. Desires, when they're arising, are not terribly unpleasant. They do get unpleasant when you start grasping them, when you begin to identify with them. As long as you're willing to hold this comfort of a, an unquenched desire, then that desire does not do much damage in your life. Only when you begin to identify with that desire, then the career of your suffering is likely to begin. So it is often not so much the quality of the stuff that arises or ceases, it's the quality to, in which we believe these things, in which we identify with, in which we say, oh yes, that's me, yeah. I need to do that. I didn't get a sweet, I have a deprived childhood. Yeah. <laughs> or I'm always on the loo when the good stuff is passed around. Or you know, <laughs> yeah. Yet again, a proof of my you know, tragic existence. Yeah, it's, there is the grasping identification piece often has a dramatization. If your grasping resembles my grasping, then it usually goes with drama. Yeah. It doesn't have little emotions. It only has passions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let us look once more at the term upadana because that term also has another meaning. The, the second uh, meaning that term has means fuel. And it is not obvious how something that is both attaching, clinging identification also can mean fuel. We cannot replicate that in English or in fact any other language I would know of. We don't have this double meaning in a term. But in Pali the word has the double meaning. It so happens that this term upadana uh, is not an invention of the Buddha. It is actually there in Vedic tradition and uh, upadana was the act of feeding the sacrificial fires. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. you begin to see the Buddha had some cheek. Yeah. So if you look at many, many of the key terms in Buddhist teaching, you'll find that he doesn't actually invent these terms. He just takes them and then he redefines them. And he does very fascinating things with them. So he took the whole analogy of fire, which in the Vedic tradition has a big, has a big uh, connotation of, you know, this is something divine. Agni is one of the great deities. The god of fire is uh, worshipped. And at the time of the Buddha, there are a number of uh, ascetic practitioners who practice fire worship. If you have ever an opportunity to visit uh, uh, Agnihotra, one of the fire sacrifices in, in the many different forms, do attend to this. This is fascinating to see where he, 
you know, people recite the Purusha Sukta and then the, the sacrificial fires are fed. You know, there are very cultivated forms of this, which you can do indoors, or there are kind of more ascetic forms where you have huge fire, huge pyres, where somebody in lungis is kind of feeding the fire. So at the time of the Buddha, several ascetic practitioners took it upon themselves to maintain the sacrificial fires in worship of the god Agni by keeping those fires going. Now, the fuel with which they fed those fires was called Upadana. The activity, the proper ritual activity of feeding those fires with fuel was called Karma. Yeah? And the fires were obviously the fires of the god Agni, who was, when in flames and visible, was in its manifest forms, and when not visible, when the fire went out, was in its latent, non-manifest form. Now you begin to suspect what the Buddha does. He takes this image of fire and turns it on its head. The fires become the fires of greed, hatred and delusion. Feeding the fires, you know, the, the proper ritual activity called karma in the Vedic tradition becomes uh, yes, it becomes karma, but <laughs> with negative connotations. If you feed the fires of greed, hatred and delusion by doing upadana, you're going to create more suffering. So he takes the imagery, he takes the language, but he completely reverses the whole project. So by grasping and identifying, you provide the fuel for the fires of greed, hatred and delusion to continue. Yeah? And the result is painful. That's very simple. Yeah. So, these forms of upadana, um, upadana is one of the limbs in the, the dependent arising, in the, the, the wheel of becoming. Um, upadana is also negatively spoken of as anupadaya, being free from clinging, as an epithet of somebody who is completely free of a mind freed from all greed, hatred and delusion. This is a mind, this is a citta that does anupadaya or that does anupadana, that does not cling, that does not grasp, that does not identify anymore. There are a number of more psychological or uh, psychologically interesting uses of the term upadana. I want to, to spend a little time on those. There are four famous forms. So remember, upadana meaning fuel, meaning attachment, clinging, grasping, identification. Yeah. Try to hold that in the back of your mind. Uh, then there are there is the observation that we cling and identify to a number of particular things. Yes. So one of the things that really freaks us out is uh, Basically, the consequence of change, the consequence of transiency is uncertainty. Ajahn Chah, a great Thai teacher, uh, always translated anicca, the adjective for being impermanent, he always translated that with maine, uncertain, uncertain. The consequence of change, of transiency, is things are uncertain. And if you look at developmentally, this is one of the things we least cope with. You know, we really can't handle uncertainty very well. It is quite disturbing to us. So many, many of our efforts, in fact, the act of creating a self-construct is one such effort, 
which Buddhism has outlined with some precision, many of our efforts are geared to get away from uncertainty. Our comfort seeking, our security seeking, our obsession with predictability, with control, with safety, all this has to do with our struggle to cope with uncertainty. Yeah. Developmentally, we need safety, we need certainty, we need predictability. Yeah. We need that to grow up, we need that to be developing our strength, our capacities, we need that to develop confidence. But practically, our world doesn't actually offer this. Yeah. So we need people to make things safe for us. If all goes well, you had such people. I trust you had enough of this to, to make it here. Yeah? So, but if these people were on the ball, they would make things safe enough for you to grow up, to figure things out, to get con connected to your own strength, to develop confidence that you, even in, if things shift and change, that you have a few tricks up your sleeve, or that you're smart enough to figure out how to adapt, or to run away faster than the thing tries to eat you, okay? So by the time we grow up, we can handle more of uncertainty because we have internalized confidence and strength and skills and the capacity to hold greater complexities and with greater complexities also greater uncertainties. Yeah? For that, we needed for things to be safe. There is a time when it's necessary that fairy tales end well, okay? And then there is a time when it is necessary that fairy tales don't, don't always end well, or maybe they end well, but there's a price you have to pay somewhere along the line. You, you get away, but you get away limping, or you lose a few things. Or, yeah, so there are developmental necessities where you learn that you know, things don't always turn out well. Yeah? Grasping is one of the mind's strategies to make things safe. So the first big form of grasping is clinging to and identification with sensuality. By that I don't just mean sex, okay? By that I mean anything to do with our senses. Anything to do with sensory enjoyment, sensory satisfaction, sensory comfort, safety, material security and well-being, you know, lots of this. Technically, the domain of karma, the word for this particular domain of grasping is karma upadana. It is anything graspable. Now, anything that you can have sense experience of is theoretically a graspable object. Okay? Your bank account, marshmallows, the sitting mat you territorially defend against intruders, you know, anything of that would be a sensory object. In Buddhism also, the sixth sense base, the sense base of mind would be a sensory object, but this particular type of attachment we'll, we'll deal with under another heading. You will easily see that kamupadana, grasping at and identifi identification with sensory experience, is one of the great pastimes in our world. Most of our affluence goes back to efforts. Most of our comfort-seeking goes back to uh, our attempts. Most of our creation of safety. Generally, our societies applaud our efforts to grasp and sense objects. We call this progress. We call this security. We call this 
um, um, affluence, we, we call this um, wealth. Yeah? So usually our societies do applaud our attempts to get more of this. Um, only when this grasping at sensuality becomes addictive or only when it becomes all too abusive, uh, then our societies uh, generally hold, hold us in contempt if we are found to be grasping at sensuality. But on the whole, grasping at sensuality is uh, not really criticized in our society, in most of our societies. Yeah. Grasping at sensuality is probably one of the most deep-seated forms of creating safety, of creating identity, of creating bondage in terms of Buddhist psychology. We create, by the things that make us safe, we become prisoners. Yeah. It's not difficult to understand. What we hold on to, we are held on to. Yeah. We are imprisoned by the stuff that we hold on to. If you've ever done Aikido, it's very easy. Yeah. Where you grasp, that's where it gets you. you know? It's understandable why we do this grasping, and it's. Let me say that I try to say that as little morally as possible. I do not see how we can not grasp. You know, this is something that is a very gradual process, and I see, I see it developmentally impossible that you could basically with a bit of will and good intentions, give up grasping. Yeah. This is just not how it works. But it is necessary to see that the depth of these forces and the, the despair in these forces uh, to get an, an idea how much we are imprisoned by our own mechanisms to gain safety. You know, the tragedy of Upadana is that because we don't cope with uncertitude, incertitude, because we're not really good at holding transience, because we have no guarantee that things will meet our needs and turn out to our like, we feel unsafe. And because we feel unsafe, we begin to grasp at things we hope make things safe. And it turns out that the very act of grasping to make things safer begins to be the thing that produces most of what we were hoping to avoid. Yeah? It's really backfiring in a major way. There is a great pathos in this. Yeah? If you wanted to see, have a very little sort of nutshell phrase for Kamupadana, you would call this basically, I'm seeking in experience. Yeah? It's the seeking mind. It's the mind that is both curious, it's the mind that is hungry, it's the, it's the mind that wants to go into the world and experience the world. The second type of grasping called Dittupadana is the clinging to and the identification with views, basically. If the first type of grasping is about seeking experience, the second type of grasping is about being right and being competent. Okay, that's an interesting one. We want to, maybe we can't solve the problem, but at least we want to know the problem, isn't it? We want to know what went wrong. I, I am like that, definitely. You know, I hate nothing so much as when my computer malfunctions 
and then I try to figure out what it is. I don't figure out what it is, but suddenly it works again. <laughs> yeah? And I realize it doesn't work again because I figured out a problem. And the fact that it now works just means the next time it malfunctions, I'm exactly as stupid as this time. Yeah? I haven't actually learned anything. It's a slight insult to my, you know, to the narcissistic computer user to not be God at his keys. You know? The slightest malfunction proves to me that I'm not really in control, that I'm not really in charge, that I don't really understand that system. In fact, I don't understand most of the system I live by. I couldn't even explain a, a light bulb properly, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, I mean, with some glib catchphrases like AC and glowing carbon threads <laughs> and things like that. Yeah, but truly understand, you know, I mean, truly understand and being able to A, explain that in de detail and possibly replicate the principle, I couldn't, you know, and, you know, with most systems I live with, I, I can't. Now, that wasn't always the case for human beings. I, maybe I'm particularly daft, but I suspect many of you have similar experiences that you're surrounded by equipment that you basically don't understand how they work. Yeah. <laughs> now, you know, for, for somebody like Goethe or Humboldt, this wasn't the case. This guy knew everything that was taught in his universities two, 250 years ago. Yeah. The complexity of a petroleum lantern was obvious to him, yeah, and it was understandable. But I, I don't live in a, in a in a world that is explicable anymore. I live in a world of black boxes. Yeah, this makes it all the more important that I understand <laughs> this equipment here better. Yeah, because here, most of what makes my life happy or unhappy is actually decided by this equipment here. Yeah. I have I have found out this equipment here can be highly unhappy under almost perfect circumstances. <laughs> I've had enough of perfect circumstance to know that I'm quite capable of suffering under almost ideal conditions. Yeah. Because I have found fault with some minor flaw or I've been obsessed with some minor processes. And conversely, I uh, I, I know that under not so good conditions I have found this mind to be remarkably resilient and remarkably capable of contentment and and uh, forbearance and even happiness and uh, there are formidable people who have under horrific conditions found impressive qualities of heart in themselves so I have no doubt that most of what determines my own happiness It's obviously the well-being of, of my loved ones and the people I care about. It's my own disposition. It's the habits and dispositions of this heart, of this mind. Yeah. So it's, it strikes me in a world of black boxes that it is even more important that I learn to study and understand this heart and this mind. So one way this mind habitually tries to f make itself safer is by being right and by being competent. A clinging and identification with beliefs, perceptual takes, opinions, ideologies, interpretations, concepts, points of view would be ways we would call ditti nowadays. A ditti, ditti comes from darshan to see. Yeah, a ditti is a view. Yeah, it's a view I take. And the important piece is not that the view is 
how the thing looks. It is my act of viewing. That's the important thing. It's the term in Pali acknowledges that views are constructed from the point of view. Yeah. It's the viewer that does the view. It's not the thing that has an objective view. Okay. So, the ditti I adopt determines very much what kind of world I live in. Yeah. If I um, If I am fixed in a particular perception, then my experience will be informed by that the perception in which I have framed that experience. Yeah. So, if you have two little kids that uh, you look after because uh, uh, you're doing a favor to a friend and you're kind of focused on keeping order and getting your stuff done and making sure that you hold your deadline and then you have these little kids to look then you know you may perceive these little kids as basically disruptions of your program these are kind of little two little demons who are hell-bent on upsetting your program yeah so if you're in warrior mode and kind of focused on getting your stuff done these little demons are basically besetting you and you you go into a a kind of warrior type mode you kind of control them or you punish them or you threaten them or you you know you you do this kind of thing yeah if you kind of take another frame of mind if you're not in warrior mode if you realize little kids need attention that's what you needed that's what we all need that's what makes us grow little little kids are interesting in relationship you know that's what they seek uh, if you're given that relationship freely they will be possibly nice if you don't give up that <laughs> relationship uh, they you know they evolution has made it so that they have very very effective ways of getting your attention yeah and are a lot better at getting your attention because it's a survival skill for them than you are focusing on your little project okay so they will get your attention anyway they will win that's why they survive. That's why we survive as a species, because little kids can do such things. Yeah? Yeah. That may not, that may collide with your little plans, with your little project plans. So if you manage to widen your frame of reference, readjust your perception to needs of little kids, and you know, this may be quite an amenable morning. If not, if you're insisting on your warrior mode, then you may have a hell of a time. Yeah, and they obviously will have a hell of a time, but uh, certainly you are going to have one because it's two of them, and they <laughs> and and they know a few tricks. <laughs> so ditties have a profound influence yeah, on how we view the world, how we evaluate what's happening in a situation. Um, to be honest with you, these ditties are not all the product of rational, reasoned, plausible argumentation. Not all views are ideologies. I would think that most of our ditties, most of our views are actually unconsciously acquired. They are more or less, most of my views, I have the suspicion, are the product of my own laziness to think through things to ponder things, to acknowledge things, to question things. Most of what I meet in myself and in other people's views is basically the product of laziness in the domain of 
investigation rather than fortified ideology. There are a couple of fortified ideologies, but these types of titties are generally easily undone because you have consciously acquired them. It's reasonably easy to consciously change them. It's the subconscious titties that are much more of a problem. Buddhist traditions tell us there are particular deities that are deemed pernicious, um, you know, refuting causality, uh, claiming that you don't have mothers and fathers, um, denying the uh, goodness, denying the possibility of realization, and a few other things are outlined explicitly as so-called uh, pernicious forms of deity. Um Unfortunately, the problem is bigger than that. Um, Buddhists, particularly Buddhist commentarial traditions, have tried to say that dittis are the views people who are not Buddhists are holding. Okay, it's the others that that have dittis. You know, but obviously Buddhists also have problems with views. It's not just the overt wrong views or the overt views that are uh, counter to facts or counter to uh, patterns of of uh, of how things manifest that are the problem it's also the the so-called proper views you know because attachment to any view will leave you in a vulnerable position so the act of attachment even to something useful uh, may create considerable pain yeah we often uh, proselytize stuff that has done us good, you know, so you've kind of been helped by a diet and then you say, oh yeah, this is really good diet, you should try that, you know, and then um, next step would be um, everybody should try that actually, you know, irrespective of what they think. Um, not it, ha it hasn't just helped me actually would be good for you but in fact everybody should do that and then the next step is you know if you don't do this I don't take you serious you know and then the next step is you know let's go on a crusade and convince the world of it's good we need to make sure that everybody does this you know we'll have to implement this as policy so what may be ha have personal value to you we're generally adopting strong views about stuff that has been useful to us uh, may become actually a real coarse and crude and um, cruel uh, perspective that we try to foist on everybody else. Yeah. Most of the cruelty, most of the horrors in this world have been committed by people with good intentions and strong views. Yeah. Uh, Greed and anger have only have done damage, but you know most of the horror, horrors of this world have actually been committed not in the name of greed and anger, but they've committed in the name of views. You know, I know what's good for you. Uh, God loves you. Uh, I have to do you in in the process, but you know, you'll go to Him. In the, you don't have to worry about anything. You're being baptized, or <laughs> in the process. So we, uh, we, we do probably more damage in the name of a particular view, a particular ideology. Some of these views are consciously acquired and some of them not. Yeah? So we also do cruelty, we also create hurt uh, in unconscious ways. These views 
begin somewhere with darkest superstition. There may be transfigured divine mystery. Uh, they may be unreflected, instinctual. They may be carefully crafted as ideology. Attachments to any of these bears risks. You know. In the name of use, we fix the other, we fix ourselves. And we're trying to establish the primacy of my competence. Yeah. And that is a type of attempt to gain safety and security. If not in things, then at least in interpretation. I have the uh, interpretative sovereignty to say, you know, what's real, what's true, what matters, what's health, what's crazy, what's sane, what's effective. Um, this has shifted in the course of the century. There was a time it was religion that did that. It seems to be now science is doing that. It's doing a bad job at it, just to be clear. That's my opinion. Um, uh, but either way, there are strong views coming and strong attachments coming from holding such views. Um, a third type of grasping attachment and identification is called silavata upadana. This is clinging to an identification with virtue, with practices, with technique. If you want a sort of, in a nutshell, the first is seeking experience, the second is being right, and the third is having the right technique. Yeah? I know how it works. Yeah? This is the magus inflation, for those of you who know Jungian terminology. This is me knowing how it works. Yeah? I've got the fix, you know, I can fix this. Um, you know, in the old days this was magic, this was ritual, then in the days of the Buddha, very big was observance. So you practice in a certain way. You know. In the old Vedic tradition, basically, you had to propitiate the gods. So your safety lie was in doing the right thing to creep the gods on your good side. And then you would be rewarded with a happy, with a full, with a contented life. Meaning many sons and many cows, and 120 years of life. That's O-tone, yeah, original tone. Um, later on, there's a shift with the Upanishadic movement some, some time before the Buddha. People were not content with that anymore. They began to feel that they can't just wait till the gods are content with them. They actually felt we can understand something and we can do things to make ourselves happier. We can do things take up practices, take up yoga, take up sadhana, take up rituals. And the result of these practices then makes us, liberates the heart. So it was a kind of a Gnostic turn and people felt empowered to do things rather than just hope the gods would be nice to them. They felt that they can actually engage in practices and thereby uh, liberate themselves or find freedom or release or bliss. So historically magic, ritual, then observance, symbolic cult, yeah, would be the old ways of referring to this. Nowadays we would refer to silavata upadana in other terms. We would speak of method, technique, approach, principle, practice, lifestyle, regime, favorite diet, you know, 
favorite workout routine. Uh, we, we would have methods and techniques. We're quite obsessed with this. Yeah? So it's important that you translate this into nowadays language. Attachments to these, kind of how you get by through your day with the help of techniques. That includes, you know, the right kind of electronic device that wakes you up in the morning, then the right kind of coffee machine, then the right kind of, uh, you know, running shoes, then the right kind of dietary uh, implementation of your particular ideology and then the right kind of vehicle that takes you to work and then the right kind of equipment with which you do the work and so forth yeah and you begin to uh, have this you know strategy that then uh, extends to your relationship so you know you begin to optimize your partner or you know uh, you kind of tune your partner or you kind of <laughs> update and you know this kind of the idea of optimization you kind of sense sorry dear you need an update right now yeah <laughs> can we can we tune this better yeah. so this is uh, silavata upadana in those days in in, in our days yeah we, we're quite uh, good at this yeah there's a lot of investment in this I, I am not free from this myself i quite like gadgetry and i like quality and you know uh, who who hand on heart uh, is really free of this. You know, we may we may have differing opinions uh, whether flower arrangements are more important than running shoes. But you know, if you go for quality, you probably go for quality in either domain. So I think this type of clinging is very obvious. It it creates comfort. It creates efficacy. If it creates uh, a sense of superior technique superior approach you know this can be managed you know. the idea this can be managed is one of the major outcomes of this type of grasping yeah it's difficult but you know we can you know we, we if we implement the right sort of method you know that we can scale this up you know <laughs> then then really it works yeah just problem is human beings don't scale very well yeah the sort of stuff that works here doesn't necessarily work with 10. You need different strategies. Well, you get this. Yeah? We do a lot to create safety in our lives, to cope with change, to cope with transiency. The last of the forms of grasping, Atavada Upadana, the clinging and to and identification with doctrines of a self is basically a subset of the ditti upadana, of the grasping at views. Atavada means uh, it's all about being someone. Yeah? It's about creating an identity. It's carving a niche of who you are in this world of so many others. Yeah? Uh, it's establishing your unique sales point. Yeah? Um, the basic wish is very simple. In a world that changes, you know, the, the, the psyche has found an ingenious little trick to create some form of stability. It says, this is me in here, you know, I'm the owner, I'm the director, I'm the, um, I make the decision, I have the agency. Um, I say what's going. 
um, you create an identity of an internal notion that pretends to be permanent. It isn't. Any close look at this quickly says, you know, it says, uh, mm, you should lose weight again, you know. It says, yes, yes, yes. Well, there's a chocolate eclair in the fridge. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> why don't you eat that chocolate eclair? <laughs> yeah? Because, you know, chocolate consists of sugar and fat, and sugar and fat trigger your hedonic hotspots. And when <laughs> you have your hedonic hotspot triggered, you know, you feel happy. Yeah? It's a reliable program. It's been <laughs> it's been going at least since the Neolithic, you know, when sugar and fat were hard to come by. Uh, something in our center, uh, kind of a our brain has helped the the finding of sugar and fat by not just um, remembering this, but actually by additionally rewarding it by releasing endorphins when I find sugar and fat. So that helps me remember where I found it. It rewards me. So this is a fairly reliable program that ensured the survival of our species uh, 100,000 years ago and f maybe 5,000 years ago and all that now kills us. Oh, okay. Um, this because we're waiting for the update. Um, so, I, you know, that voice in my mind, goes, oh, why don't you eat that chocolate eclair and then you feel happy? Because right now you're not so happy, but if you eat the chocolate, you will be happy soon. Yeah, so the Kenyan goes, eats the chocolate eclair. And then the voice says, I, I wouldn't have done that if I were not. So there, where is the permanence in myself there, you know? They all use the same voice. They all hold some reason, but you know, it doesn't quite seem to be consistent. Yeah? So being someone, establishing an enduring, preferably eternal, substantial, personal, perfect, immutable, lovely self yeah? that sits in here and that says what goes. It's convenient. It gives me a sense of safety. Yeah? It's fiction. And God, it needs a lot of maintenance, yeah, because anything that doesn't exist needs a lot of maintenance, yeah. It needs a lot of validation. It needs a lot of flattery. It needs a lot of confirmation. That's a huge problem. Yeah? So such a self is, um, it's kind of, this is English fun poem, setting to sea in a sieve. Yeah, the jumblies. Some of you may remember that. I can't quote it right now, but the idea of setting to sea in a sieve is my analogy to cr trying to live with the self. You know, as soon as you paddle out, it's gone. Yeah, it's leaky. You can only keep it afloat by manically uh, hauling water out. Yeah. So. If you want, if you has, have established a sense of safety on the basis of a notion of self, you're in for a lot of hard work, yeah. Because these selves they dissolve, yeah. Like everything that is not really existent, um, if you try to keep up a semblance of existence, you need to really do a lot of patching, a lot of inventing, a lot of confirming, yeah. So uh, here the piece is a permanent self. Okay, the Buddha did not deny a functional psychological self, by which I mean uh, my own capacity to connect my needs uh, 
with my agency, with my vision of what is uh, wished for in my life and uh, uh, an effective way of connecting need, capacity and agency to go in the direction in which I wish to go. Yeah. The Buddha never denied that. If you look at his life and his way of operation, you would have to say that he had a rather robust and healthy self in that sense. But the Buddha's problem with the self was not the psychological self. His problem with the self was a self with metaphysical ambitions. It was a Vedic self, which was basically a soul. Only with the psychologization of Buddhism, we've gotten rid of translating the Atta as a soul, and we started translating that as a self. And now we have a little problem. It sounds like the Buddha denied the psychological self. Believe me, the Buddha did not preach psychosis, okay, as liberation. He said the belief in a permanent self, in a little uh, eternal soul, whether you conceive of that as a, a stable core of your uh, mind or whether you conceive of that as a little thumb-sized man in the space of your heart, as some religions have conceived of that, uh, doesn't really matter the insistence that there is a permanent, substantial essence at the core of your being, the Buddha clearly denies and he states, the problem with this is it's going to create suffering and it makes learning impossible. Yeah. Because if that thing is eternal, then your problems are eternal, your hang-ups are eternal. It's not just you're safe and you have a, a nice little cozy corner to retire into, it also means your neuroses are a curse. Okay. So learning becomes possible because change, because personality and self is a dynamic process. Yeah. What he calls selfing, creating anatta out of my experience, generally works very simple. The principle is identification. Yeah. A thought pops up in the mind. I become aware, ah, there's a thought, smart thought. Thought kind of moves past. The, smart, the thought, because it pops up, must be my thought, because it's here. I see it, I can feel it, I hear it. Yeah? So, ah, my thought. Interesting. And then something fascinating happens. There's a shift of perspective. Yeah. My, my thought suddenly makes out of me a smart person. Because it's a smart thought, I become a smart person. The thought goes and the smart person stays behind. Yeah? That's the trick. Problem is, next time is a stupid thought. Yeah? Yeah. Or she has a smart thought. Yeah? And then I, I have a, a little conflict with her because her smart thought makes a smart person out of her and then my smart self and her smart self have a little tussle. Yeah? So this is the process of identification. By an arising phenomena in my experience becomes appropriated and while the phenomena moves on, like all phenomena move on, I then infer ownership and a smart or stupid or generous or stingy person stays behind for a moment, yeah, until the next thought arises or something else happens. This is the act of identification. Doing that with the self, with the notion of self, is, a, is, an, is an attempt to create safety, to create stability. And Buddhist teachings go in some detail how we do that. I'll spare you this tonight, but 
this um, is analytically worked through and looked at very detailed how we establish uh, a self on the basis of changing experience. And the argument is very simple. If all experiences are changing, if my body is changing, if my will functions are changing, if my sense input, input is changing, if my emotions are changing, if my images and my thoughts are changing, how could I create a permanent solid self out of changing things? Yeah. Now, the, f the freeing thing is not to believe that, as plausible as it may be. The freeing thing is to establish this on a point-for-point -point basis. Whenever it feels a little bit like self, we look where it, this self rests on and find it rests on unsafe grounds. Yeah. And that is what culminates in a, in a basic mantra. This basic mantra runs like this. This is not mine. This, is, uh, this I am not. This is not myself. This is not mine. This, is I, this I am not. This is not myself. The culmination of this, uh, uh, Thai teacher puts it like that. He speaks of nine particular realizations. This is a wonderful man who has single-handedly uh, turned Buddhism in Thailand from being a pastime of grandmothers to actually a relevant teaching for an educated middle class. His name was Arjan Buddhadasa, and he was a very, very creative, very, very unruly man a monk for most of his life, a great practitioner, uh, an icon really. Uh, and he has educated generations of uh, very powerful people, generally uh, university folks, uh, the, the whole, whole Thai, uh, uh, about two, gener two or three generations of judges in Thailand have all, have all been influenced by him. So he, uh, was a careful reader of the suttas and he made a list of nine different realizations. Now this list is nowhere to be found in the Theravada canon nomenclature. All the terms are to be found, but they were never they, they're never found in that particular list. I want to just read them to you because it's fascinating. The, the first of the realizations is impermanence. It's anicchata, yeah, the tabit basically means the state of being. Yeah? It means the abstract noun. So anicca is the adjective, impermanent. Anicchata is impermanence. Yeah? The second one is unsatisfactoriness, dukkata. The third one is anatata, selflessness. So you see, the three characteristics of experience, when thoroughly understood, become realizations. Yeah? The fourth one he calls naturalness. <coughs> This is Dhammatita Ta. This is, means that things unfold according to a natural order. Yeah. There, is, there are principles that govern the phenomenological experience of world and self. Um, this, the sixth one, the fifth one is um, the fact that things are developing according to patterns. Yeah, which Buddhist teaching calls Dhamma Niyamata, the pattern of, say, how growth takes place, or the pattern of how causality takes place, or um, the pattern of the seasons would be a very simple example of this. 
The sixth one is the principle of specific conditionality called Ida Pachayata, which is a fascinating principle that underpins dependent arising, the fact that things hinge on conditions. Yeah? Sounds complicated, it's not, this plant here. Yeah? Hinges on earth, on a seed, on water, on warmth, on light. None of these conditions can make that plant. Even the seed cannot do that alone. Yeah? Take away one condition, the plant dies. The co-arising of these conditions make it possible that this plant flourishes. Okay? This is conditionality. No single thing makes the plant. The plant depends on all of them. One of them less and the plant dies. Okay? This is the principle of Ida Pachayata. Then we have Sunyata as the seventh principle is the realization, understanding emptiness. Things that are dependently arisen this is one side of the coin. If you look at that coin from the other side, you see it's empty. All you see is conditions. There is no substance in there. The eighth one is a very mysterious one called Tathata, suchness, wonderful. Later forms of Buddhism have made uh, uh, a lot of this. Uh, and finally, the last one I find personally very fascinating is called unconcoctability. That is a mouthful, isn't it? The Pali word atamayata, it's also the word of my center back home in Cologne, is uh, rare, but it is a fascinating term. And it, let me just explain very briefly. And it's basically, it, it's made up of a couple of particles. And one of the particles is tamaya. Something is made out of something. Yeah. Something, the idea is, is already in the, Vedic, in the Vedic teaching there. It means if my mind engages with something in a very focused way, my mind becomes that thing. Yeah? The equivalence of the mind and the thing. So a mind that is focused on Brahman, for example, will become Brahman by focusing on Brahman. So it's a very powerful idea. I become the thing I engage with. Not unlike the quote I began tonight, I think that the mind begins to resemble the things it engages with. But the Vedic teaching was one more. It says it becomes identical with the things yeah, it engages with. And the Buddha found fault with that perception. He said, the mind does not become the thing it engages with. Although it may resemble it, the capacity of knowing will always be different from the object that is known. Yeah? So, from Tamaya, uh, the Buddha comes to Atamaya. That means the mind does not identify anymore. Outwardly, it does not reify the world. It does not make objects of the world. And inwardly, it does not identify with the self. Okay? So, the state, the realization of Atamayata means I live in the world, I experience the world, but I do not reify this world. I do not turn it into things and into objects. And inwardly, I do not identify my subjective experience with a solidified self. Ha! That is quite something, isn't it? <laughs> so, um, I'm afraid I have to leave it at that. <laughs> the mantra of Atamayata is, I think, this is Ajahn Buddhadasa again. Uh, 
the very simplest form of atamayata means I am not made out of this. Yeah? I am not this, this is not mine, this is not myself. Yeah? This little mantra takes us out of the habitual pattern of identification and grasping. Yeah? Good. Let's be silent for a moment. Then. 